Last week, we began to enter into our study on who is Jesus. We spent last month looking at God the Father and who is God and looking at His characteristics, His attributes, His traits. We are moving into this month looking at Jesus and who He really is. Last week, we talked about that Jesus is, and we have to establish before we move any further, that Jesus is Lord of all, of everything. And so this week we are going to move in, as Adam's already alluded to, and great job there on that, Adam, that we are going to talk today about Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf for our lives, His life for our life. But again, like I said, we're going to, as we move through this, deal with two uh, specific questions this morning, that why did Jesus have to die, and why is He the perfect sacrifice? But this morning I start... As I often do with a story. This is a story of Eddie Slovic, and many of you probably don't know the name, have never heard the name before in your life, but his story is an interesting and tragic, if not altogether unknown one, like I said. He holds the distinction of being the only person to die at the hands of his own military in World War II. As the story goes, Private Slovic had come from a very difficult background and a very troubled background, and he seemed to be getting his life back on track when he received notice that he was being drafted into the war to fight in World War II. And so after training, he was sent off to Europe, where in his first actual combat experience, he became so utterly terrified of combat that he laid down his weapon and he simply just walked away. And try as they might and to get him to come back, he refused to return to his unit for duty. Now, m- many and most of us would not know this, and, and I'm honestly not sure if this is still the case, but it was in World War II. The sentence for desertion in a time of war is quite clear by military standards, at least it was in World War II. Death by firing squad. And you're like, what? Wait a minute, what? What did it? That is shocking, right? That if you walk away from your unit and your company and your duty to serve, the actual penalty is, is death. But, but no one at this point, and least of all, Eddie Slovic, believed that it would actually happen. But happen it did. As the case moved through the military judicial system, it became shockingly obvious that he would be fatally punished for his desertion. And even though no one trying the case, or certainly no one carrying out the punishment on that fateful day, was thrilled with the outcome, but on January 31st, 1945, Private Eddie Slovic became the only person, the one and only person, to be executed for desertion in World War II, and the first person to be executed at the hands of his military since the Civil War. And here's what made the whole scenario even more bizarre and confusing was that although over 21,000 American soldiers were given varying sentences for desertion during World War II, including in 49 of those cases, they were given a death sentence, Slovic's death sentence was the only one that was actually carried out. He was the only one who actually died. And I know you're like, what in the world? Like, where'd that story come from? I didn't hear that in any history book that I went through in school. It's a crazy story, isn't it? And immediately and naturally, 
it brings up a very obvious question, or a, a pair of questions, really, is did Eddie Slovic really have to die? Now, on one hand, we would say, well, by the book, yes. You go in. But on the other hand, there's hopefully a tinge of compassion in all of us saying, but really? I mean, again, 21,000 other soldiers deserted their company or unit. 49 of those were also given a death sentence. None of them, the rest of them carried out except for Eddie Slovic. Why in the world was he the only one who died such an unspeakable, confusing, bizarre death? But in the case of another young man, in the prime of his life, we can say on the authority of God's Word that, and I've heard this line already used this morning, I think Adam said it if I heard it clearly, that Jesus Christ had to die. No questions about it. No gray areas, no fudging the fact Jesus had to die. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus had no choice or that he was just a passive bystander in his crucifixion and what led up to it. But guys, it was Jesus' mighty love and his obedience to the Father that made any other choice unthinkable. If you would say impossible. Jesus had to die. And the same question that's asked and has been asked already in the case of Private Slovic is very important and, and very appropriate in the death of Jesus. Why did Jesus have to die? And again, I, there's probably some people sitting here this morning being like, dude, like we've heard this story. We know this. We know the reasons why. Do we really, do we really know all of the reasons why Jesus has to die? And, and if you do, if you know all of them, just humor me this morning and sit there because I believe that there are probably some here this morning that are like, I don't know, tell me. Why? This is going to be one of the main questions we ponder this morning, even though Jesus had in the moment that we're going to read about and has the right currently today and most certainly has the power to annihilate Satan at any moment. You understand that, right? This is honestly the craziest thing. Jesus has all the power in the world. He has all the right, all the ability to annihilate and be done with Satan like that, he curiously, all throughout redemptive history, chooses to defeat Satan in stages, little by little. And ultimately, what does he do? The most shocking thing of all, he defeats Satan at the cost of his own life. See, God didn't say, I'm going to send me another sacrifice that's going to take care of this. No, he said, I'm going to send myself, I'm going to send my, my, my son, my precious son, my only beloved son to take care of this issue. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 15 would say it this way, and Paul relates this sacrifice in this way. You, and when it says you, he's not just nebulously talking about any you, and like we just be like, oh, he's talking to somebody. No, he's talking to you and to me. We were dead because of our sins and because of our sinful nature was not yet cut away. I love these two words. Then God. Like you, you were in a world of hurt. 
I heard Adam say, this world, like the sin that we commit in our lives that has been committed, has left a very nasty stain on this world, then God. Then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave, hold on, hold on, go back to that. What does that say there? He forgave what? All. You know what that means? Do you know what that word means? Every last sin that you have or ever will commit paid. No question. He continues on saying he canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And I love the last part here in verse 15. In this way, because he did this, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I said Jesus curiously, and God chooses through Jesus to curiously defeat Satan in stages. And you're like, why? Like, why does he mess around with this guy? He has all the power of the world to just be like, you're done. I think there's something, I, I can't prove this. This is total speculation, so please don't try to find this in Scripture. I think God revels and just slowly but surely saying, I've got you, Satan. You ever have that point in your life? You're like, you know what? I could really make this go super fast, but I'm going to draw this out. And the pain is almost greater in the drawing out of all of that and saying, you are cooked, buddy. Guys, this means... That Christ's aim in defeating the devil must be something more than just getting rid of him. I mean, he could, he could have done, like I said, at any moment, in an instant. The key to this conundrum is that Satan is defeated most obviously in the death and the sacrifice of Jesus blunting the deadly effect of sin for those who trust in Christ. What does Paul say here again? Christ's perfect sacrifice, as Paul says here, I love the word, disarms Satan of the most deadly weapon that Satan has at his disposal. And guys, by the way, he is still using this weapon today. Unforgiven, impossible to reconcile sin. That is the issue that before you come to Christ, you and I have and this whole world has. We, I mean, like we can talk all day long about what's wrong with the world and what's going wrong with the world and how it's chaos and what is the real true problem. The real true problem is that if you are still in sin and you are not in Christ, you are not reconciled to God. That is the big issue of life. And what does it say? Paul says on, by, by Jesus, going to the cross, dying, sacrificing himself, becoming a perfect sacrifice, he disarms the power of Satan to come to you and say, I've got you. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have to have you. Somebody has said it this way, to take sinners out of Satan's hands by virtue of Christ's perfect sacrifice and his obedience to the Father was a way, way more glorious victory than just merely annihilating the enemy. And to begin looking at the sacrifice of Jesus, we'll start in a very familiar place. I've already told you this morning, John chapter 19 is where we're going to start 
our look this morning. And we won't read all of John 19. Welcome to go home and read all of that chapter. I encourage you to do that. But Jesus' time on earth is coming to end as we come to John 19 here. And in verse 1 it says this. Like, I wish I had time to just slow down and really talk about so much in John 19. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. I mean, like, I could just sit there and teach on that one verse for a long time and what that meant and the torture and the agony that is involved in what the Romans called the 40 lashes. Many people didn't make it through it. They died. They literally died in this moment before they even made it to a cross. It was a wooden handle with leather strips that had in it embedded bone, sharp bone, and pieces of lead, or sometimes just lead balls, round balls that they would use to, not just, like, it wasn't like they were whipping somebody. Like, you know, when you were growing up, when I was growing up at least, I got a whooping a lot, all right, with a leather belt. This was uh, a whooping that would open up somebody's back and they say would uh, expose the deepest arteries and veins in somebody's back. And in some cases, and I hate to be graphic about this, but we have to understand at least at a small level what in the world Jesus goes to and the length he goes to to save you and I. That sometime when somebody was getting a 40 lashes, it would lay their, uh, their skin open so much that you would actually see their internal organs. That's just the start, by the way, boys and girls, of what, of what Jesus goes through on his way to the cross. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and they put it, and they jammed it down on Jesus' head and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked and they slapped him across the face. And Pilate went out again and said to the people, I am going to bring him out to you now, but understand, and then listen to this. Pilate says this three times in his time with Jesus. I cannot find anything wrong with him. I find him not guilty. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, look, here is the man. Such a famous verse. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him, take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him, second time, here in John, We'll say it again in one of the other Gospels. I find him not guilty. And then continuing on and skipping down here a little bit in verse, to verse 12, it says, Pilate tried to release Jesus, but the Jewish leaders shouted, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Verse 14, it was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover, and Pilate said to the people, look, not just here is your man, look, here is your king. Talked about a coronation ceremony last time. This is a coronation ceremony at the hands of the Romans, quite mockingly, but little do they know exactly what they're doing. Away with him. They, the crowd, the religious leaders yelled, away with him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. And then listen, they suddenly get super patriotic here. They have, they have no love whatsoever for Caesar or Rome. And what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. The leading priest shouted back. 
And then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So interesting in the Gospels and the biblical record of the Gospels that rather than slow down to a crawl when we come to Jesus' betrayal and his trial and his crucifixion, everything speeds up and seems to start going really fast when we come to Holy Week. In fact, the Gospels, as one commentator says, are chronicles of Jesus' final week with increasingly longer introductions. Because you realize that near to over a third of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put together, are given to the final week, one last week in Jesus' life. Over a third. If you were to read the biographies of any other larger-than-life figure, you would be hard to press to find any of them devote even close to that, even close to 10% of a person's death. You read any great biography, it's like a, a blip on the radar. They talk about the person's death. Guys, this is something unique and distinct about the sacrifice of Jesus. It's why John would later write in one of his letters, in his first letter, in 1 John 3, 16, we know what real love is. We think we know what love is in this world. We try to pursue a lot of love in this world, but we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. It's why John would later say in just the next chapter in 1 John, 1 John 4, 14, furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes, and this is what John attests to in his gospel and in his letters, we have seen with our own eyes and now we testify, and listen to the last phrase here, that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Guys, this is what motivates and influences John to write not only this letter and the other two that follow it, but also the gospel that has his name attached to it. Now, when it comes to the death of Jesus, one and only one apostle is at the foot of the cross. And you know who that is? John. John had a front seat view to everything that happens with Jesus. Everything that happens in this, as we will talk about, perfect sacrifice. And knowing the extreme sacrifice and the eternal significance of Jesus' death at Calvary that day, he writes towards the beginning of his gospel, you know the words, don't you? In John chapter 3, verse 16, for God loved the world so much. I can't remember which one of my kids that was growing up. And I say, how much do you love me? I, I love you this so much, is what they would say. Like they were some like Italian mob boss or something. This so much. But uh, that's what I think of when I read here. Like there's, there's like no, there's no way we could stretch our arms wide enough to capture the love that Jesus has for us. So much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now guys, there, there's a wealth of reflection contained in just that one verse in the words of the most famous verse in the New Testament, if not all of the Bible. I mean, we could easily break that verse down and consider the different facets and actions that are present in that very powerful verse and what Jesus does for us on our behalf, but only one will be our focus this morning, and it's this. 
He gave. He gave it all. All the way to the end. And we continue reading in John chapter 19. We'll skip a little bit to the death of Jesus, starting in verse 28 of John 19. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. That is such an interesting line, by the way. I mean, of all the things that you're like, you're hanging on a cross and you've been beaten and tortured and you are completely exhausted, thirsty, like everything you could think of right now in your life. And Jesus is on the cross thinking not of himself, but everybody else and everything else. And could you just imagine that moment? He's hanging there and he's like, mission accomplished. Mission was finished. And to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty and so a jar of sour wine was sitting there and they soaked a sponge in it put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to its, his lips and when jesus had tasted it he said it is finished and then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit and guys, to find out why Jesus had to die, we need to look beyond the surface of the evil and the darkness that pervades this whole story and to the spiritual truth that God was, and this is for some people honestly sort of offensive, but I'm, I'm, this, is, this is what Scripture gives us, that in Jesus dying on a cross, God the Father was pleased for that to happen and more importantly for our purpose this morning, he was satisfied to send his perfect, sinless, only son to the cross. And many people would look at the cross and they're like, this is messed up. I mean, really? This is the way that you write the end to a, a man's story here on earth? Guys, Calvary was not only, and it was earth's greatest tragedy, but thank the Lord, it was also God's moment of triumph. Two questions, I'm going to say them again, and I just, we're going to hone in on this this morning. Why did Jesus have to die? What makes him a perfect sacrifice? First one, we're going to go for it. Why did Jesus have to die? First, he died to take our, our place as our representative. First Peter, we're going to work from that for a little bit. We're going to use this as a parallel Scripture to John chapter 19 this morning, and I'm going to keep coming back to this over and over again. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but He died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. And it's, it's this idea in here in 1 Peter 3, 18, when I said here, He died to take our place as our representative. This line that is said in here, in other places, the just for the unjust, he who never sinned for sinners. It says it right there. He died for sinners. He died for every person who has already been convicted of wrongdoing in heaven's courtroom. You understand that, right? That before you come to Christ, and if there's anybody in here today that's outside of Christ and has not chosen Christ as their Savior and as their Lord, you already stand convicted. Guilty. Like if you walked in here this morning outside of Christ, I, I hate to say this, but I have to in love tell this to you, you walked in with a guilty sign over your head. And you may not feel that way. Like, yeah, I know I've done some things that are not great, but in comparison to that guy over there, I'm not so bad. No one is good. 
except for God. He is a standard of goodness. God cannot overlook and He cannot associate with sin because He is holy and just. And this is the problem of all of life, guys. We are. And this world is marred by sin. It is tainted by sin. And so there is a a gap and a valley and a chasm so wide I couldn't even express it. As wide as eternity between man and God. And merely ignoring our sin doesn't get rid of it. We would love that, right? If we'd be like, God, could you just like maybe like just look the other way? Could you just turn a blind eye and not really pay attention to this? It wasn't that bad. God cannot do that. He cannot turn a blind eye to sin. And that's because he's, it's not because he's not loving. Like, God, come on, seriously, just, just make one exception here. Just one case. It's not because he's not loving, but it's precisely because he is loving that he cannot turn his eye from sin. It's said in a, in a court of law that when a guilty man is acquitted for whatever reason and the justice system goes sideways, the judge is the one who's really condemned. A judge cannot claim love and a judge cannot claim justice when he willingly lets the guilty walk. I came across a story in my reading this, this week. It said a missionary who ministers in a large men's prison in Africa was told recently by the prison administrator that at least, at least 70% of the men in that prison are actually innocent of the crimes that they convicted or are accused of committing. This official explained that the real criminals got away while these men just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The police needed someone to arrest, and so the accused were taken, and since they didn't have any money to pay off the officers and the officials, they suffered while the guilty went unpunished. The story breaks down as it has to do with humanity and sin because there was no wrong place at the wrong time, right place, right There's no question about it. We're guilty. And that story I just told is this, is this not what happens in a cosmic sense? We, when we come to Christ, when we accept this perfect sacrifice on our behalf, we are the guilty who become free. While an innocent man was sentenced to a death for our crimes. My, my crime. Try that on sometime. Instead of saying, you know what? Jesus died for our sins. Just make it real, real personal and say, you know what? Forget our sins or the world's sin. Jesus died for my, me. Jesus died for Ryan's sins. Guys, someone has to pay to simply let everyone off scot-free as a violation of God's character and nature. God cannot and will not overlook sin. But because of His immense and overwhelming love, catch this, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who we'll talk about next month, He, we'll talk about Him, they drew up a plan well before sin had taken place for Jesus to carry the burden of all mankind and to account for this cosmic eternal problem that sin would create. As it's important to understand that the cross is not an accident. It was not an uh-oh, whoops moment. Like, we've got to scramble here and figure something out. Guys, the cross was in the heart and the mind of God from all eternity. Guys, before 
it all. Well before you, God saw the cross. Is that comforting? Is that reassuring for you to know? God already had a plan long before sin shows up in this world. Guys, not only did Jesus have to die and he, and he did it on our behalf, but he did it to suffer for our sins. Again, going back to 1 Peter 3.18, he suffered for our sins. It could not be more blatant and obvious. He suffered for our sins. Guys, just before John 19 that we read earlier, Jesus finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you, many of you will know that story Literally, do you know what Gethsemane actually means? Olive press. It's very interesting, isn't it? It was a place that they would go and they would press olives to extract oil from them. There was probably a huge olive grove there in Gethsemane. It's symbolic of the extreme emotional and spiritual duress that Jesus was under on the last night of his life here on earth. Jesus and the disciples would have had to cross. To get into Jerusalem, you have to cross what's, what's called the Kidron Valley. And law, logic and scholarly wisdom and knowing the context of where Jesus and his disciples find him, it is the Passover time that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Logic would have us believe that the brook that ran through that valley, the Kidron Valley, would have been running very obviously with red from the literal sacrifice of thousands of Passover lambs in the temple. It would kill the lamb in the temple and it would drain itself down to this brook in the Kidron Valley. Like, could you just stop for a moment? Jesus is walking and he knows what he's walking into. It says from the very, almost the very point of his ministry, and several times it says he set his mind and he set himself resolutely towards Jerusalem. He knows what is coming. Could you imagine the salt in the wound moment when you have to walk through a brook running with red and the symbolic nature of that and knowing that your blood is going to be running in just a few hours? Talk about creepy and eerie. When Jesus is in the garden, Jesus talks about a cup. You remember? Father, if you could take this cup from me, do it, please. But, it, but I want your will to be done, not mine. Guys, what, what, this is weird. Like, we don't like, ask this, what is that cup? What's he talking about a cup for while he's in a garden? Why does that cup involve such great suffering? You understand that in the metaphorical and the symbolic cup, Jesus hanging on the cross and, and, and like I said, symbolically drinking that cup of God's wrath, all of the vile sins of all of mankind for all of time were in that cup and they were taken on by the sinless, stainless, spotless Lamb of God. Guys, the Father held nothing back when Jesus was punished on the cross for our, on our behalf. Jesus bore the full weight of God's fury and wrath on that cross. Guys, every moment of Jesus' suffering was like an eternity. It really was to Him an eternity. If Again, we believe that this cross was the plan all along from eternity, all of eternity was literally compressed into the hours and the minutes leading up to and flowing out of the cross. As we think of the suffering of the cross and what leads up to it, we think of the physical side, right? I already told you about being, I just, I just did like the first part of Jesus flogging. Not everything else that goes along with it. We also often think of there was an extreme amount of physical pain in this sacrifice, and yes, there was. 
but it's likely true that the spiritual and the mental agony of the moment was on par at least with the physical pain that Jesus felt. In Luke chapter 22 and verses 43 and 44, it says that an angel, it was such a struggle for Jesus that an angel had to come and strengthen Jesus. And then it says this in the next part in verse 44, he prayed more fervently and he was in such agony, that's a very important word there, that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Agony here, the agon in Roman culture was a wrestling match. That's what the agon was. And so when it speaks of agony, there's a contest going on. That's the word that's used here for agony. And we think, what, what, what was Jesus wrestling with here? He wasn't just wrestling with the Father or even Satan. I think that what Jesus is wrestling with is his own humanity. So much so that, again, angels had to come and attend to him so that he would have the strength to endure the cross. Guys, we, we all need, every person in this world who has ever been or ever will be needs someone or something that can deliver us. Not only from certain death, but from sin itself. We need someone who can reconcile and bring back our relationship to God so that we might live as we were meant to live in His kingdom. Guys, every single person who has their eyeballs looking up here at me, this goofy guy on a stage talking, Every one of us here this morning, every person watching at home, every person in this world who has no concept of what is going on right now in churches across this world, we all have the same singular need. You know what it is, don't you? It's not rocket science. We all desperately need Jesus. Do, do you believe that? And I'm not just saying it like, I, like, yes, Ryan, you're looking at me, so I'm going to shake my head. Like in your heart of hearts, every single day that you live your life, every moment of every day that you live your life, you're like, oh, my land, I would be lost without Jesus. I'm just going to say, I'm really honest, guys. I honestly don't know how anybody could live without Jesus. And yet people are trying to do it. People are struggling. Like, can I be really honest with you? People who know Jesus, that are in Jesus, that have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord are struggling. Why in the world would people without Jesus think that they wouldn't struggle just as much, if not more? Came across a very interesting story this week. It's a story of a man named Beck Weathers. I, I bet you if I was to put $100 down on this table, Wade Whitaker knows the name Beck Weathers. Am I right? I lost it, darn it. <laughs> Wade is like my outdoorsman. I really thought of anybody he would know the story of Beck Weathers. Anybody heard the name Beck Weathers before? There was actually a movie made about him. Beck Weathers was part of one of the most harrowing tales involving Mount Everest. May of 1996, Beck Weathers set out with an expedition party to scale the tallest 29,000 feet, almost 30,000 feet mountains. Like, just by the way, can you grasp that? Trying to climb something that's 30,000 feet tall? It's insane. And base camp at, at, um, for Mount Everest is at about uh, 17,000 feet, if I'm correct. I'm cor if, if I'm wrong, it's really not an important part of this story. And so to get to base camp is a feat in and of itself. 
17,000 feet. And then they get to the second camp and the third camp. And they get to the fourth camp of Mount Everest at about 26,000 feet. Nearing 27,000 feet. And they are ready to make their final ascent, their final assault on the summit of Mount Everest at almost 30,000 feet. And they wake up and the, and the weather is honestly like eerily calm. It's like one of those moments you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, this, this is way too easy. Like if you know anything about Mount Everest, you watch anything, the weather up there is unpredictable and it's usually wild and horrible. Calm on this day and they think we are going to do this. And they get going on their climb and they run into what is a problem for many people. If you don't know this, Mount Everest, although it should seem like, it, like nobody should do that, like don't go climbing 30,000 feet into the air, it is one of the most by far climbed mountains in the entire world. And what happened this day is even though they had calm weather, there was such a rush and amount of people trying to get to the pinnacle and the apex of Mount Everest that they were moving so slow. What made matters worse is they were moving so slow that the weather started to turn. What made matters worse that they were moving slow and the weather started to turn is that Beck Weathers had had surgery on his eyes to correct his vision, and at that height and at that extreme temperature, which is really at that point when they actually got made it to Camp 4, they were in the death zone. People shouldn't be that high. His, his, his surgically repaired eyes started to mess up, and they started to change shape internally to the point where he was blinded. And so they had a conversation amongst themselves, Beck Weathers and his expedition party, and they said, Beck, this is going to kill you, but you've got to stay here. And his climbing partner said, I'm going to go up and I'm going to summit this thing, which I like that, by the way. He's like, real true friend, I'm going to go do this, but you are going to stay here. You have to stay here. I will come back for you. And as the story goes, as Beck Weathers sat there for minutes and then hours and then several hours, his climbing partner for some reason, and I did not read the entire story, did not come back for him. There were many other expeditions who were coming down the mountain, and they saw Beck sitting there, slowly freezing to death, and they asked him, hey, come with us, we've got to get you back. And he said, no, I'm going to honor my word to my climbing friend, that's very important on this mountain, I say that I'm going to be here, and he's going to come back and get me, I need to be here. He never came. And finally, one last expedition convinced him, you've got to come down with us. Oh, but there was one more problem. That expedition got caught up in really bad weather. They got disoriented. They got lost. And so for the entire night and overnight, Beck Weathers, with only the body heat of the rest of that tiny expedition, all piled up with one another, endured Horrible, horrible wind, snow, and weather conditions. I was out for like 15 minutes this morning, folks, in blistering wind, and I'm a little baby. I was like, done. And so you can imagine what happens as he sits there overnight, his face and his limbs begin to succumb to frostbite. And by chance and by fate and, and luck, and you're like, yes, this is the moment where the story finally gets better. Beck Weathers is going to be rescued. A rescue party did find Beck Weathers, who overnight had been buried in a sheet of ice and snow. And they looked at him, and these are the decisions you have to make on a mountain, unfortunately. They looked at him and said, he's minutes from death. He's not worth our time. 
and they literally left him to die, to go on and to rescue other people. Amazingly enough, Beck Weathers wakes up, somehow stumbles his way down to Camp 4 at about 26,000 feet, collapses in a tent into a coma. But he can hear the whole time that he's in this deep state of like being gone from this world. Everybody come into his tent and they say these words. There's the dead guy. Now, by the way, how would you love that, right? I've gone through this whole ordeal. I've somehow made it back to civilization and around people who could help me. And all they can say is there's the dead guy. Guys, if ever someone needed saving in this moment right here, it was Beck Weathers. When Jesus gave his life, guys, he didn't simply die to take our place or to suffer our sins. Really, honestly, at the end of the day, anyone could have claimed to have taken our place. Anyone could have claimed to have taken the hit for humanity. Anyone could have claimed and gone to suffer a really brutal death, but it wouldn't have been a single thing. And therein lies the problem. That route had been taken for thousands of years. If we could just find the right sacrifice, if we could just find the right person, if we could just find the right way to bridge this gap between us and God, and still God's people found themselves, even in this moment of Jesus going to a cross, no better off. In a situation very similar to Beck Weathers. And go, guys, the, the crux of the cross lies in this truth right here. Why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die to pay the full amount. Again, 1 Peter 3.18 would say that he died once for all time. That's the word that Peter uses there, or the phrase that Peter uses there. In John chapter 19, we read it. There on the cross, Jesus at the end of his life says what? Three words. What? It is finished. The Greek word, therefore, it is finished is the Greek word tetelestai. And tetelestai means literally paid in full. The word had a very interesting set of uses in Jesus' day, and most notably for our purposes this morning, it was a word that priests would use when they would inspect the lamb that you would bring to be sacrificed. They would look this, this Passover lamb over and make sure that it had no blemish, that it had no spot, and if it did have no blemish and no spot, the priest would say what? Tetelestai. It's good. It's satisfactory. It's without blemish. Jesus, according to Peter and John and many other biblical writers, was the lamb without blemish, without spot, the perfect sacrifice. And as the perfect lamb, but also, we're told in Scripture, as the priest, he offers, again, crazy enough, himself, not another sacrifice. That had been tried again, guys, for thousands of years. And so rightly, Jesus can say as He hangs on the cross, the only person who could truly and really say this in all of history, to die. 
That word was used by merchants when something was paid for, when it was finally paid in full. To telestai is someone's way of stating, I paid it all. And so we sing, as we have already sung this morning, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain, but He washed me white as snow. To telestai. It's, it's your sin. It's my sin. It's this world's sin. It's paid in full. That's what Jesus does on the cross. In Jesus' day, when a person committed a crime, they were given a certificate of debt or a sign that stated their crime and their penalty commensurate to fit the crime. But if they didn't serve the death penalty when their time had come and they had served all of their time and the sentence was met, do you imagine what they wrote on that certificate of debt or on that sign? What's the word? To telestai. Paid in full. No more reparations need to be made. No more convictions are necessary. Said this way, every sacrifice for sin made in faith under the first covenant in the Old Testament was only an IOU paid in full at the cross. Not only does Jesus die to represent us and to suffer for our sins and to pay it in full, but He does it to, to bring us back, to reconcile us to God. What does it say here in 1 Peter 3.18 again? To bring you safely home to God. The word for bring that Peter uses was often used when a person was, was ushered into the presence of a king in his throne room. Because we understand this, don't we? We don't just stroll casually into God's presence. No, 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 no. Someone will meet us and will bring us into God's presence. You know who that person is, right? Everybody say it. It's a Sunday school answer. Jesus. It's the only way that you get to God is Jesus. I have personally never myself been to and visited the White House and inside the White House. And some people are even lucky enough to be escorted into the Oval Office. But you probably know that if you show up, number one, to the White House, and certainly if you're going to the Oval Office, someone's going to be meeting you at the front door, aren't they? They don't just waltz into the White House and just start looking around and fist bump the president. Like, no. You're met by security. You're padded down. You have to go through all kinds of background checks even just to get into the White House. Guys, let me, let me say it this way. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that offers a sacrifice that perfects. Somebody has said it this way, and this will probably like, scramble your brain because it did mine. I had to read it like 14 times. Jesus is a perfect sacrifice, and what he does is a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. It's like a Dr. Seuss book, isn't it? Try to wrap your mind around that one. Why did Jesus have to die? What makes Jesus the perfect sacrifice? I'm going to do this very quick because we're running out of time. But I don't need to really belabor this. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We've already hit on this a little bit because he is one of us. He came to this world and took on flesh to become like us and to know us. But the next part here is very important too. But Jesus is the perfect sacrifice because he is sinless. He came to this world, He took on flesh, He died in our place 
to know us and to become like us, but what does the Bible say? But without sin. He would become one of us. He would die in our place to be our ransom. And in doing this, He would do something that no one else was able to do. He would become the temple, the place of sacrifice. He would become the high priest, the one who would offer the sacrifice. And above all, He became the Passover lamb, the atonement sacrifice. Guys, here's here's the big difference between any sacrifice that had been made before that moment and what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus put away our sins. He did not just merely cover over our sins by the sacrifice of Himself. Jesus is also the perfect sacrifice because He is divine. He is God Himself. I'm not going to go into that point because we will talk for an entire sermon next week about Jesus being God. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God until His enemies are made a footstool under His feet. I want to ask this question this morning. What, I want you to think for just about three seconds the most significant sacrifice that you have ever made in your life. And typically as you think of that, and if you think about the rest of the day, when we give to someone or we give to something, we usually give what? From our excess, right? Like, what do I have a little bit extra of and I'll give that? I mean, in a way, it might sting for a bit. It might cause a minor inconvenience, but it ultimately doesn't derail us that much. We sacrifice a little of our extra time. We scrimp a little from our savings. We may even forego something of our peace for a short period of time. And oftentimes, even when we make that small sacrifice, we expect something in return, don't we? I did something, so now I want something back. A reward or notoriety. And it goes without saying, guys, that the level of our sacrifice, the extent to which we will go to meet a need, reveals our level of dedication to something or to someone. The more we're willing to expose and extend ourselves to give up something that so someone else has something demonstrates the meaning that that person has to us. And so I want you to consider this. God sacrificed His most precious possession for those He loves the most with no expectation initially and no guarantee of repayment. Is that not the most mind-blowing thing you've heard? God says, I love this world so much. I'm going to send my son to die for a world who really and truly, I believe this, God knew they're not going to get this. So many people will turn their back on this but he does it anyway. Do you you want to know God's commitment to you, to the world that he made? Guys, look no further than Jesus. He is the ultimate demonstration of how committed God is to his creation. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, though millions of sacrifices had been offered, yet nothing was done to purchase redemption before Christ's incarnation, his coming to this world. So nothing was done after his resurrection to purchase the redemption for men, nor will there by anything more done to all eternity. Jesus is it. He is the final word. He is the end of the story. Guys, Jesus' perfection covers our imperfections. I know there's probably at least one person in this room this morning that's thinking, okay, that's great, dude. You told us the story of Beck Weathers, but you left it 
as him in a tent, dead, for all intents and purposes. What I didn't tell you is that a world away, his wife, by the way, I love his wife's name, her name literally, Peach, Peach Weathers, all right? That's got to be an interesting couple, by the way. Peach Weathers receives the news, your husband is dead. Everybody believes he is dead. And so many people would have said that's, I mean, like, that's it, and gone into a state of grief. What does Peach Weathers do? I ain't giving up. A man's not going to be dead. She finds out that he is clinging by life, and she gets on the phone, and she calls every single person that she can to try to intervene in some way to get this man rescued. The only problem, oh, wait a minute, there's like, what am I, like, problem 17 here in this story? Beckweathers is at 26,000 feet. Do you know what helicopters don't do? Helicopters don't fly at 26,000 feet. Uh, Beckweathers didn't know that. She had no pilot. She didn't know anybody in Nepal to rescue her husband, Beck. And it's probably a good thing that she didn't know that because she just kept on trying. She called any connection she could in, in the government and as one thing led to another, they got a hold of the State Department in Nepal and they got a hold of somebody. But again, problem 18, there ain't no stinking pilot that's going to risk their life to go up to 26,000 feet. Helicopters don't work there. By sheer grace, a very brave party of people were able to take Beck Weathers and bring him from 26,000 feet down to about 21,300 feet. You still understand that's higher than any helicopter had gone before that point. Until one man who felt like he had a moral obligation to step in the situation said, I'll go. And to speed the story up, he goes, and up to 21,300 feet he goes and gets Beck Weathers. And Beck Weathers is with us today only because of the bravery and heroics of a number of people, and especially his wife, who would not stop at any cost, and that pilot who went up there to risk his life to make sure that he lived. In fact, in the book that he wrote about that harrowing incident, he writes a gigantically long thank you list and letter to all of the people, every last individual person who had a part in making sure that he still had his life today. And when I think about Peach Weathers and I think about, there was no logic in that situation. To think that her husband was going to be rescued from the jaws of death and Mount Everest. I compared that to God himself, and I can only say it this way, guys. It is a stinking good thing that God does not operate on logic, but he operates on love. Because what he has done for you and for me is way beyond any logic scale that I have in my life. It's off the radar. It's off the charts. I want to end with one more story this morning that I thought was very appropriate to end this story, or to end this sermon. During Napoleon's, yes, that Napoleon, French famous Napoleon, during his Austrian campaign, his army advanced to within six miles of a town or a city that was known as Feldkirk. It's a beautiful little village, I guess, based on this author here. I can only imagine it's in Austria. How could it not be beautiful? 
It's nestled in the mountains of Austria, and it looked as though Napoleon's men would take this little unprotected town without resistance. But as Napoleon's army advanced in the night, the Christians of Feldkirk gathered in a little church to pray. It was Saturday night before Easter morning. And at sunrise, the bells of the village peeled out across the countryside, and Napoleon's army, not really realizing that it was Easter Sunday, thought that the Austrian army had moved into Feldkirk during the night and that the bells were ringing in jubilation and celebration that the army had come to rescue them. And Napoleon ordered a very, very hasty retreat, and the Battle of Feldkirk never happened. The Easter bells caused the enemy to retreat, and peace reigned in the Austrian countryside and he ends that story by saying what I'm going to end with this morning and it is the truth of what Jesus has done for us in being a perfect sacrifice what a wonderful absolutely marvelous God we have who has put our spiritual enemy Satan in retreat and he has given us victory he has given us peace he has given us assurance of sins forgiven and the hope of eternal life because of his death and his resurrection and his ascension back up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And what's he doing right now as he sits at the right hand of God the Father? It says in Scripture that he always lives to intercede for us, to speak on our behalf. And because he lives, our enemy has not only retreated, but has been totally and utterly 100% defeated. Guys, Jesus is indeed the perfect sacrifice. Amen? You pray with me. Lord, we, we stand in that truth that You sent to this earth Your perfect, Your one and only, Your most beloved treasure and possession, Your Son, Jesus. And You did it. of love and sacrifice, but Lord, we'll sure try the rest of our lives to wrap our minds and our hearts around that, because you have wrapped your arms and you have wrapped your heart around us. I pray that we would walk out of here as we sing one more worship song, Lord, we would understand what you have done in taking people who were dead. We were dead. We are dead until we come to you, and you have raised us to new life, and we rejoice in that it is our song every day of our lives that you have made us new.